Welcome to Finding My Yum, a sex-positive podcast celebrating all forms of sexual expression. Each week, we bring on a new guest to share their journey. We talk honestly and openly about what they're into and what sex, kinks, love, and more look like in the real world. I'm Jerry Courtney Austin. And I'm Will Lentz. And we're your hosts. And today, we're thrilled to have Natalie Brewster Wynn here to talk all about... Oh my God, so many different things. Uh, like creating a community where they're co-parenting her justice movement organization that she uh, co-started with uh, another person, um, being a sex worker and being an activist and just like her uh, amazing journey. Um, I thoroughly enjoyed talking to them and learning all about like what they've been through and, and particularly this community community that I think is, you know, I, I think in the United States, we have an idea or I have an idea and I grew up, you know, with the idea of a nuclear family where you live in like a single family home. And so the idea of having other adults outside of the family blood unit, right, who are um, equally participating as a parent just sounds I, I idyllic to me, quite honestly, <laughs> at this point. Like, it sure. just sounds, like, amazing. Um, yeah. yeah. It was, I mean, yeah. it was really interesting. It's not something that I was familiar with. Mm-hmm. Um, and it is. Like, I don't I don't know that I consider it idyllic for me right now, but it is mm-hmm. something that, like, I definitely see the appeal to it. And there's always the adage of, you know, it takes a village and all that kind of stuff. And, like, I think there is a lot of legitimacy to it. And I think, uh, you know, I think with how spread apart our attentions and passions can be it can be helpful to like just being around my nephew and niece lately it's been like man it takes a lot to raise a kid like having co-parents as she describes it's like yeah that makes a lot of sense yeah I, I there's something that really struck me that Natalie said about you know wanting to have a kid but not having that be their only identity right like having all of the other things that make them who they are and what they want to do and an artist and an activist and a sex worker and you know all these other aspects of who they are um, still thrive and that that can happen with the support of a community Um, and I just think that that's that's really cool and I think we're I got the messaging a lot of particularly as as a woman too of like I have to do everything <laughs> like oh, I have to have yeah. a career and I have to be a great you know an amazing mom and I have to be able to like support everything and like this idea that that's just crap and you can you can enlist these people who who are blood to um to help this community thrive and to just give like more adult support to these kids like what a what a cool concept it's just not, I mean, it's, yeah. it really, like, it blew my mind. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, and so before we get to that, uh, we are recording this on January 20th. So we officially have a new president, President Joseph R. Biden, and vice president, first female president, uh, Kamala Harris. And, um, yeah, I mean, you know... Uh, what a day. <laughs> what, a great, <laughs> what a great fucking day. 
<laughs> Absolutely. Yeah, look, I mean, there's a lot that's still messed up with America and politics and the Democratic Party and the Republican Party and all kinds of things, all these caveats. I don't know about you. I still get patriotic when I look at stuff like that. And yeah. I and I also understand the problematic side of that because it really or like it really washes away all the issues and the nuance. But but yeah. it, 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 it was nice to today, you know, to sit and watch it and be like uh, to, sigh, to, to, to have a sigh of relief. Um, at least for and a little like a bit. a little bit of hope. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah. I think it's worth saying. Yeah. A little yeah. Ca- cautious optimism, but yeah. a little optimism nonetheless. Yeah. Um, so, you know, I hope all of you experience that as well. <laughs> and um, yeah, are having just maybe like a tiny, a tiny bit brighter of a week or just yeah. like able to take a, a little bit deeper of a breath. Yeah. Um, yeah. And so without further ado, we present this episode to you with Natalie. Enjoy! Yay! Welcome to Finding My Yum. I'm so excited. Today we have Natalie Brewster Wynn here, who is a multidisciplinary performance and installation artist, writer, actor, movement artist, and educator. They are passionate about social justice, community living, acro fitness, adrenaline sports, sex workers' rights, and radical co-parenting. She owns a historic art uh, studio warehouse called the Splinter Brothers and Sisters Warehouse, supporting cutting-edge, innovative, and political art and performance. Thank you so much for being here today it is my immense pleasure thank you for having yeah. me yeah yeah um i'm so excited to be connected with you through my cousin who i absolutely adore and love jill um who's actually been on the podcast as well oh that's cool. awesome i love jillian yeah. yeah um yeah she's amazing and i've heard just uh, like incredible things about you and i think that bio and opening just leads itself to all of the amazing things that you have done and continue to do um, so I'd love to jump in with uh, just a little bit of background about, you know, um, I don't know how you got to what you're doing today. I mean, we're going to talk about the community space that you own and how you co-parent there and like all the activism um, and, and amazing things and how they intersect with sex work as well. And so I, I guess um, if you can narrow it down, because I don't know what a good starting point would be but like where the journey to sex work started or and how you even found yourself in Tucson Arizona yeah it's interesting about sort of where to start all those things are kind of intertwined of course um you were asking earlier a little bit about kind of my history with activism and if that came before or after sex work and um I think that might be a good place to start because it's yeah. probably the earliest <laughs> um I have been just super passionate about social change since I was like five years old. Not oh, wow. joking. <laughs> like, um, yeah. it was a really big thing, big part of what I thought about. And, um, you know, when you're that young, I think I thought a lot about environmentalism and animal rights and kind of like sustainability. Um, and I was just a voracious reader who was constantly traveling all over the world in my mind. So I was, I think really interested in other cultures and, um, anti-racism and things like that. Um, mm-hmm. so yeah, I think I wanted to be an activist from a really young age and kind of was trying to find my way on that path, um, as soon as I could. And, and also was an, I was an artist and a writer from day one as well. So I was always kind of playing with like, how do we affect social change? I mean, that's been a really long-term question for me around arts versus activism and mm. 
always trying to find the places where those things merge. Um, I also really love science and, you know, community building and things. So, you know, really playing at these intersections of lots of um, different things. So I've really been passionate about, you know, art as social commentary, but also not just social commentary, but art as, as a force for social change and utilizing that as a tool. Um, and then so the story, so yeah, that was that was always my thing. Um, in terms of how I got into sex work, I have a few fun anecdotes about sort of like sex work and how that started and things. Um, yes, please. One of them being, uh, I don't know, you know, I've, I've just always been drawn to it from also kind of a young age and human sexuality is always super fascinating to me. Um, but, you know, I wasn't a person who started having sex really young exactly. I think... I have had like an intellectual interest in it. And I was always interested in sort of the world of body modification and stuff. This started happening when I was like a young teenager. Um, and I sort of started kind of finding a little, this was, you know, way pre-internet. I'm old. <laughs> so um, <laughs> the finding books here and there, magazines here and there, newspaper articles that would sort of mention these alternative lifestyles. And I grew up in a really, really conservative suburb of Chicago. So did not have access to any real life examples of that stuff, but new. Okay. Yeah. That's what I was going to ask. What was the environment that you were growing up in? Like, was it like super permissible or was no. this more like taboo and not? Okay, cool. So born again, Christian, it's known as like the place with the most churches per capita in North America. Um, oh, wow. Yeah. It was a dry town. It's like very, very conservative. Uh, and as a like, you know, queer person of color, like artist, complete, I, I, from, way early on just did not fit in there at all. <laughs> so sure, knew I sure. needed to knew I needed to get out. But um but so when I was uh I think I was a sophomore, I might have been a freshman in high school, but I think I was like fifteen or sixteen and a friend of mine was working at like the Sears photo lab, you know, one of those types of places. And Yeah, was that like glamour shots? No, not glamour shots. Like okay. like the family photo. Like where people would oh, come okay, and, okay, you know, okay. whatever. I mean I guess you could Got glamour it. shots there, but it was like it was like, you know, um, one of those big studios where people would come in and schedule their gotcha. Christmas photos or whatever. Um, so because she was working there, she was like, hey, we can go in and use the studio and take photos sometime if you want. And so I was like, oh, that sounds awesome. Let's go do it. So we, you know, pulled together some costumes. I like grabbed my mom's old wedding dress and like various things. And then we go and completely innocently, I conceive of these photos where I'm wearing this like all vinyl kind of um, outfit from like you know, shitty Hot Topic or something like that in my like <laughs> knockoff cheap Doc Martens because I couldn't afford real ones. Sure. My brother had this like Indiana Jones bullwhip from like wall drug when he was eight, you know, and so I brought <laughs> yeah. that. And I had her in my mom's wedding dress, like looking all innocent in her little prayer pose with flowers in her hair. And then I was like standing over her doing all this stuff. Amazing. <laughs> and I just thought it was like super fun right and then I was so excited about the photos when we got them back I showed my mom <laughs> and I was like hey mom look at what we did the other day and she lost her mind not like in a meeting you shouldn't punish me or anything she was just like you're sure. too young for this what are you doing and, how did this come out of you at this age and yeah. I had no idea right like I wasn't it was just me like that was just very much who I you know and so um so yeah, I've had I've been a kinkster since before I even knew it, basically. And Amazing. Um, <laughs> uh, so then that kind of went on, and and I just so around seventeen, I actually dropped out of high school and went to college early. And at seventeen, I remember knowing that like I really wanted to get into sex work, and I was trying to figure out kind of how. But I also didn't even really know 
what it was that I wanted. Um, so I was sort of like looking in the papers and talking to people who maybe had known somebody who'd known somebody uh, and was getting a little bit more and more into the world of kink and BDSM, just experimenting again, like not exactly even knowing, you know, knowing something about the world and learning a little more sure. at this point. But um, yeah, like called the number in the back of a paper to go try to work for a massage service and that didn't kind of pan out. And again, this is also pre-cell phone. So you like... Sure, sure, sure. Yeah, you got to like send the snail mail or something. Yeah, like yeah. That or like landlines, or landlines, and payphones <laughs> and pagers, and yeah. barely, barely pagers. Oh yeah, yet. Pager. barely pagers. Yeah, yet. oh god. Or I guess pagers were well instituted, but it just kind yeah. of like I was broke, so I didn't have one because I couldn't afford it. Sure, sure, sure. Um. So then, eventually, a friend of mine who was a little bit older and went to the same college uh, over summer break, she went and like worked a little bit, interned a little bit at a dungeon in the city. And I was like in Chicago. And so that piqued my interest. And um, I kind of was like wanting to figure that out as well. Um, and so then after I left school, I, I went there for three semesters and then moved to the city to, to do different stuff because I was in a school that was outside of the city. So I wanted to be in the city making art, making music. Uh, so I moved to the city and um, just kind of slowly started finding my way there at a friend who called a number out of the back of the paper and dabbled, like worked a tiny bit in a dungeon as well. And she had a safe experience there. So it kind of wasn't for her, but I was like, all right, well, you did this one. It's proven, like I'll call them too. So mm. I called this number, Worship Our Feet, out of the back of the paper and um, went in for like a cold call. And basically he was sort of like, great, you're hired. Like go in that room there. <laughs> And um, I sort of totally didn't have like any of the right getup. I didn't know what I was doing. I didn't get any training. And he just threw me into this like, oh, wow. four hour session with somebody. Um, and so I was like, all right, here we go. <laughs> and um, how old were you? 19. Oh my gosh. Okay, yeah. cool. <laughs> and uh, yeah, so I did this four hour session, which was uh, like, a lot of foot worship and this guy would come in and it turned out that this entire dungeon was basically built around just this one client. One client for four hours a day is pretty much all you need to run a run a sex work space. Sure. Right? Yeah. So I mean the guy certainly had other clients that that ran it, but um this guy was like his main bread and butter. So he would come in, he was like a trust fund kid who was just a drunk and he had nothing else to do. So he'd kind of come in every day and spend like four to six hours and he sort of liked a different Wow. girl every time so it was kind of mm -hmm. high turnover environment it was gross it was this like basement that smelled like piss like in Wrigleyville and you know I was in this like dirty basement room with this guy but I was still like having the best time I was just like this is awesome and then I left and I think I made like $500 that first day and then I went Woof. then I went back again saw the same client and one other client and he paid me um, the first time he'd be like, he'd been like, I want you to piss on me. And I was like, uh, this is my first day. <laughs> I was like, next Sorry. time, I'll, next time. He's like, I'll give you $500. I was like, awesome. So then the next time I came in, he wrote me an extra $500 check and I was like, great, let's do it. Um, so second day on the job, first golden shower and um, et cetera, et cetera. And then that day I took home like 900 and something dollars and I was like, this is it, I'm done. Oh my I love God, this yeah. forever. And then, of course, after that, it took me like 
years and years to ever make a thousand dollars in a day again, like <laughs> at least a decade of working. Sure, sure, but, sure. Um, so then, yeah. And then that sort of dungeon didn't last for a super long time. I have a lot of other really funny stories about all the other things that happened in between, but long story short, eventually I went to another dungeon and worked there, which was a much more commercial organized place, but you made a lot less money because, you know, they would charge $150 for the session. They would take a hundred, you would get 50. And so oh, then wow. you're working like you're in this, this is again, pre-cell phones. We had no control. So we're in our, you know, thigh high boots in this sweaty, sweltering, like industrial loft waiting for the phone to ring. We're not allowed to leave. We're not allowed to like, you know, do all these sorts of things, use the phone recreationally. So that's a much more like oppressive kind of experience but it was still really bonding and fun and like you know some of my best friends worked there so it was yeah. it was a really formative time what what did you enjoy about it like what looking back or in the moment like what what does it I it sounds like it's something from when you were very young that like feeds that part of you but what else, like what does it what does it give you because I know I've dabbled within BDSM very lightly and had like a little bit of contact with it um and a little bit of kink and 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 you know uh just like a little bit of interaction and it brings up these different sides of me and it ignites and and it also it makes me get more clear about my boundaries it it brings more awareness around I don't know my pleasure and things that I like and so are there aspects that 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 make it fun like what makes it fun for you or what do you find really exciting about it so I think one of the so I've been a sex worker for over 20 years now, like 20 something, right? And 22 years or whatever. And um, I think one of the things that's really different about that experience versus the way I work now, still mm. being in BDSM, still being in sex work, is that I'm very much more myself. I run my own business. I am my own manager. I, And so my clients are all very close to me, kind of. Like I know them well. They know me well. Like we, we connect in a real way. And I'm very authentic about who I am and what I like. Um, that experience was completely the opposite. You're totally anonymous. They don't know who you are. You don't know who they are coming in. Sure. You might do a brief intake where you're like, hey, what are your limits, you know? But otherwise, it's this very different, um, it, it's a layer of fantasy on top of it, which I think added for them that experience too of like, I'm just going to come in here and get on my knees in front of some young woman and I don't know what's sure. going to happen. Right. So that's the, that's the fear, yeah. the expectation boner. Um, <laughs> yeah. but, uh, so I had, a, there was so much freedom then for me because, you know, I was 19, I was playing, like I didn't, I was just experimenting with anything and everything I could get my hands on. And I didn't, um, I had very few boundaries myself, but it was very much an okay, within that, the context of that, like as a dom, you were encouraged to sort of like set sexual boundaries for yourself. So it was a lot of me doing things to people, which is exactly sure. what I wanted. Um, got it. And so I just got to completely have free reign in the world of BDSM to do anything I wanted. And these much older men were thrilled about it so yeah and paying for and it. paying for it yeah cooler. yeah so <laughs> yeah. it's I think in a in a way like being a young person doing sex work is, is a really safe way to explore your own boundaries because it doesn't have I mean mm -hmm. in the best cases scenarios sure. there's certainly the whole bad dark side that yes. we can talk about too but 
in the best case scenario, it's a it's a playground for you to experiment without having it have any emotional impact on you. Like it's something you can just leave there. You don't have to bring it home into your life. And I think for the clients too, it's a really clean box in which to play. Um, and I love that. And the other thing about that experience that I I have a lot of sadness about because I don't think many people get to experience this anymore because mm. of the extreme anti-trafficking rhetoric, because of all of the draconian laws around that, which means that it's so more so much more difficult for us to work and for us to share resources and share spaces, is that I see so many sex workers now who are getting started or 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 working or haven't working for a few years who are so isolated, you know, it's like them and their Twitter feed and their internet. And, you know, we talk to each other, but this experience was like me and two of my best friends laying around naked in a sweltering apartment for eight <laughs> to 12 hours a day, just like bonding. And the sex workers are yeah. the most amazing people ever, right? And so we yeah. were having this experience together, but aside from the experiences where we were in the dungeon making money, there were all of these hours of us just, talking and dreaming and imagining and thinking. And like, that's also where a lot of my community organizing and activism started to happen. Cause those were periods of time when I could be reading and learning and thinking and doing, um, and preparing for all of this other stuff. So, mm. yeah. I love that. Um, yeah. So I do want to, I do want to get to, you know, um, the darker side and also the legislation that's coming about now that is, you know, silencing sex workers and making it more difficult to have community and to be able to do the work in general. Um, but I'm interested in in just following up with, so now when you do sex work and as your own manager, what what does that look like in comparison to that that initial experience or those early experiences? You kind of talked about it, how it's like, um, you know the people you've created, relationships, you're your own boss. Um, but yeah, I'd love to hear more on that and then how that has impacted and flourished into this amazing community that you've created. Because um, and, and, and correct me if I'm wrong, but it feels like they're integrated to a certain extent. Um, so if, if that's the case, yeah, I'd love to expand on that. Yeah, they definitely are integrated. Um, I, so I've never been great at working for other people. Like I don't do well in institutions or schools. I mean, uh, not because the material is challenging. It's just the, like being part mm -hmm. of this like set schedule and rote hierarchy. I have never been able to handle it well. So, um, I, didn't, you know, I worked at that dungeon and learned a lot in a short amount of time. I think I maybe worked there for a year, a year and a half, something like that. And that was a big year in my life, packed a lot of experience into that time. And then uh, went out and started my own business. And there was some, there was some drama there too, which is another interesting story. But um, so me and two of my friends who worked in the dungeon started a business together. And um, yeah, I basically worked for myself ever since. So getting your own clients for sex work or was there other aspects to was this an all-encompassing business yeah no I no uh, started our own dungeon domination got business. it oh, okay got it and then you know we sort of were independent sex workers we were independent doms um but kind of had this collaborative website because we would often share clients and do doubles and things like that and then i started my own and so then i was renting space from another dom in the city. And then I started my own dungeon about a year later. So by like 21, I had my own space and um, 
Wow. Uh, you know, was renting to other people and stuff like that. So I've kind of been an entrepreneur in a lot of different ways for a long time. Um, but I've always also loved. Can I ask a quick question? Mm. Is our dungeons legal? In terms of like the the I don't know the laws that exist, did yeah are they legal? So that's a that's a complicated question. So it depends on the state uh -huh. that you're in. Um, Got it. So Arizona has very very strict laws around what constitutes sex work. So here domination is very much within the realm of sex work. Okay. In Illinois, for instance, when not when we were working in the commercial dungeon, that it wasn't legal per se, but it wasn't totally illegal depending on what activities were happening there and if you had a business license. But okay. you know, also Chicago's a city that's more used to, you know, organized crime and things like that. So the, the cops sure. were sort of like whatever, like the dungeons, meh, you know, like as long as they're not doing anything, they weren't really that concerned with us. Got like it. we were still concerned, but um and there were certain activities that were would have been included in you know prostitution or pimping and pandering or whatever versus other activities that you could get away with um okay or were considered legal a lot of dungeon and sex work spaces the one of the aside from the activities that are taking place there is really the legality of the location so it's mm. you know is it legal to have a business like that in a home it's sort of like can you have an independent massage practice in your home oh, okay. yes you can depending but there's different ways in which like you can if you don't have a business license you can get in trouble depending on where you are if you especially okay. around sex work if a sex work space is within a certain number of yards of a school like or a school. blah 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 you know like then then that becomes this extra layer one okay. of the big, the most damaging things I think to us with all this anti-trafficking bullshit is um, that if we share spaces, which makes so much sense because we're we're not using it all the time. It's much more economical. You know, sex workers are often struggling financially. Then now we have this issue of if, you know, you and I are independent sex workers and, and I I can't take a session, so I send you a client of mine, for instance, then that can be considered like me trafficking you and you can become. Oh, wow. Yeah. So, so a lot of the things and like us sharing a space creates like all these other, you know, people have gotten the book thrown at them and people I know and been put in like federal prison for things that were basically resource sharing. So it's, it's messed up. Um, is that coming from a particular legislation or just the compounding of many things that have been passed and, and laws that were in existence as well? Yeah, I am not a legal scholar, so I sure. but I do know some who are. And then um, like Melissa Sontag-Bruto and the, the Sex Worker Project in New York, um, they do a lot of re research about that, Melissa Hara-Grant. Um, so I don't know. I would say it's a compounding, but it's been it's been okay. going on. Things have been getting worse and worse and worse, okay. right? And then all the online stuff. Another thing is that like sex work laws, sex trafficking laws are so difficult to defend against in Congress, right? Because if they're like, you know, they word things like, you know, all about sex slavery and sex trafficking and if and they put all these crazy riders on things and like, you know, you can't be a senator who's like, "No, I'm not going to pass a bill about child sure. sex trafficking like come on even sure. though if you look at the fine print what that's right. not what you're doing actually so. right right i was just i had a guest on recently who was talking about uh, describing it as like a blunt solution to a fine 
problem of like these sweeping things that I don't even think they're taking into consideration, like how massive the impact can be. Um, Not at all. Yeah. Yeah. Um, amazing. So then I'd love to transition into, um, so you, you worked, you, you started your own business and your own dungeon from an early age. And then, so what was the transition to coming to Tucson and the decision to do that and, and the community that you've now created and this, um, yeah, this amazing space that, that, that has so many uses. Yeah. Well, so I've always loved living in community. I was always loved like you know, collaborations. I think that was always my dream. So ugh, the building that I initially moved into in Chicago is very involved in like the queer art scene, very involved in the music scene. I played in a, a queer women's um, like punk orchestra for years and years and years in Chicago. Cool. Um, and we, so the building that I ended up moving into, I I've found that if you like anchor a space and you really invite people, then people will start to come and people will start to move there. And so that's what happened with that building. My friends had moved in. I moved in. Then we just started bringing more and more people. Every time an apartment would open up, some more friends would move in until we sort of ended up having this like critical mass of, I don't know, there's probably 50 different, 50 of us living there, 50 people who were, it, it was wow. a large building, but it was this beautiful old Chicago, like U-shaped brick building with these wraparound porches inside. And so we'd have just this like incredible community of people this constellation of people around that space. And then I had my dungeon there. Um, there were several other sex workers, like maybe six of us that lived there and different people oh, cool. had different spaces. So um, yeah, we all collaborated and three of us had lived together, three doms had lived together in one apartment at one point as well. And um, that was super fun, like incredible, beautiful, kinky, like dream dreamy um yeah yeah and so you know so i've really i've always loved community living and uh you know now this term that everyone's kicking around of mutual aid but i think that's always just been a natural inclination of mine and so i, I you know i just nothing makes me sadder than a wasted resource or an unshared resource so living in community is a really efficient way also to survive if you're poor um yeah you don't need 10 drills you only need one you know so yeah um true. and you know shared everything cars bikes lovers you know <laughs> yeah totally <laughs> so then um yeah so I was really involved in the queer art scene and I was kind of doing lots of performance and burlesque and various things uh and I had been trying to find a sex worker activist community for a really long time. Mm. Um, my best friend and wife at the time, were, we were like trying to figure that out together. We were trying to start something, but organizing around sex work is really hard because it's illegal in so many places. It's really scary to do. It's very hard to be public about. Um, yeah. So we were, we were really challenged by that. And um, again, pre-internet, it was, it was hard to organize. Got it, yeah. Once the internet started coming around, it started to get easier. And um, we found, we ended up in Tucson the first time. So and interestingly, she was born in, in Sun City. She was born in the Phoenix area. And then, oh, okay. and then moved to um, Chicago area in, in like middle school or early high school. Uh, so we knew each other from there. But then, um, so she heard about this sex worker art and film festival that was happening in Tucson and heard about it on a message board somewhere. And so we like packed up the car, 
drove across the country in my shitty little Honda, like, um, and nice. came to the festival and, you know, immediately got here and we were just like, I was just so thrilled, like thrilled to my toes to meet like a group of other sex workers and people interested in this. And it was a really magical experience. And I found Tucson really magical. I mean, I'm from the frozen Midwest to like desert was amazing. It was November. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. You came in like the really nice part of Tucson. Yeah, totally. (laughs) And um, and, you know, the organizers kind of immediately were like, who are these young sex workers who came all the way across the country? Like, and I was like, yeah, I'm a performer. And they were like, great. When do you want to perform? <laughs> like, when do you want to teach a workshop? So I just kind of jumped in with both feet right away. And then, um, yeah. And then after that, I came back every year for the for the festival and then ended up headlining it one year. Um, cool. And then I – and it was interesting at the time, the Tucson Pima Arts Council actually was early on, like, giving the festival a lot of financial support. And so that that was also really impressive to me. I was like, how cool that the city is actually supporting this. Um so then, yeah, then I started to get into national sex worker organizing kind of stuff with Swap USA and various other organizations. Mm-hmm. Um, so started doing a lot of organizing with them. And I... Uh, Do you know Mistress Velvet? I don't. Oh, um, they work for... Or I think they're starting to have a, a major role within Swap and they're amazing. Cool. Uh, so I was just curious. Oh, yeah. that's great. I've been, I've been a little bit um, taking a break for a few years from that. Oh, okay. Organizing with Swap, but um, but yeah, it did for like fifteen years. So. Oh wow, cool. Um, that's great. I know they were looking for a new ED, so maybe they're maybe they're taking yeah. that role. Yeah, I think so. I can't. I can't remember. Um, I interviewed them a, a couple months ago now, but uh, I knew that they were taking on a new role with that's great. within the yeah organization. Awesome. um yeah and so then yeah I was touring for a while I did a tour with the sex worker art show tour which was also an amazing crazy bonding experience and kind of hard in a lot of ways but was really beautiful um and we one of our stops was in Tucson as well and I just every time I came back I kind of like just liked it more and then would go back to Chicago in the middle of winter and be like why 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 am I here I'm here (laughs) um and then there kind of came a point where for a lot of reasons I was like it's time to go I need to like drugs I was a heroin addict for a long time I was like I have to get out of here um Mm -hmm. just was in like a really what felt like a stuck place um my partner at the time then lived in Toronto so we were trying to figure out where we could go and be together because we've been long distance for a long time and a bunch of other things, but it just kind of, um, I wanted to move out of the city. I wanted to move to a place that was more outdoorsy where I could like, you know, Chicago, you have to drive for hours to get to anything that sort of feels like wilderness at all. And even yeah. then it's like a cornfield or maybe a forest, you know, but, um, I mean, there's some beautiful places there, but it's just, once I had come West and been like in the mountains and the desert, I was like, that's what I wanted. Um, yeah. So, and I didn't imagine I was going to stay here forever. I, I was, so I left from Chicago and went down to live with the Zapatistas and study down in Southern Mexico for a while. Oh, cool. And so I did that for three, four months. And then I, and I'd moved myself. What were you studying? Um, the Zapatistas have this um, amazing language school called Oventic, which is like one of their oh, cool. um, secondary schools for their youth. It's one of their Caracol, their communities. And they have a international language school within that. So 
cool. um, allies and supporters from around the world can come and study either Tzotzil, the Mayan language, or Spanish. So I went there to, wow, to learn cool. Spanish. Yeah. Oh, very cool. Yeah. And um, that's helpful in Tucson, too. Yeah. 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 Uh, and I, I was interested in that because I'd been working with a solidarity network that had been supporting sort of Zapatista efforts prior to that. So I wanted to go down and sort of be in the, see it in real life. Um, yeah. And so, and another reason too, I was interested in being closer to the border region, right? Like paying attention to border issues and immigration issues and what's mm -hmm. happening in Mexico. Um, I liked the idea of being closer. I love Tucson. I had great sex worker friends here and I just was like, yeah, let's go, let's go to sunshine. So I love that. It's such a different, like, I wish I knew that part of Tucson because I had like such a, you know, a, a myopic view, I think, yeah. from, from growing up and being in school and then going to the University of Arizona. Like it was pretty small. My, my frame, my, uh, yeah, like my, what am I trying to say? Like my, my vision was very like. <laughs> Your Tucson sorry. frame of reference was. Frame of reference. There we go. Yeah. <laughs> Um, amazing. And so then did you, when did this warehouse come about and, and this, like this new community, I guess that you were doing something very similar to what you had created in Chicago Yeah, or to an extent, I suppose. Well, so I wasn't sure what I was going to do in Tucson or how long I was going to stay. I was thinking, you know, I wasn't, I wasn't thinking I would be here for 10 years necessarily, but, um, sure. I'm also, I'm on the road all the time. I'm constantly traveling, um, except for this year, but generally. Sure, <laughs> um, sure. And so in some ways, Tucson was like a compromise. Like I knew people here and I it had an international airport where I could get to the places I needed to get quickly, but it was a small enough town that I wanted to move to a smaller town. I, I really Got wanted it. something that felt a little bit more intimate, um, but it was big enough that I felt like I moving to an actual small town was terrifying to me. My skill set is completely <laughs> urban. So I was like, what am sure. I going to do? Um, yeah. So, and then I was like, well, you know, and if it doesn't, I can always go and work up in Phoenix or, you know, that kind of thing. Um, so when I came back to land here after being in Mexico, I was pregnant and I had been wanting to have a baby for a while um, and always knew I was gonna not do it in a conventional couple-y sort of way that I wanted to have a baby in community. So I got pregnant and then I basically invited a whole bunch of my friends to come here for New Year's Eve and camp out with me. And so about, I don't know, 15 or 20 people came. We all hung out for the New Year's Eve holiday and then I sort of invited them to be part of my family. And um, over time about six people moved here um, wow. to kind of join me on this journey. And some of them ended up being my co-parents closely, and some of them are a little bit more like uh, ended up doing their own things or starting their own families. Um, and and not all had stayed, but yeah, we have a good number of people that I imported who have stuck around Tucson, which is pretty great. And yeah, um, and so then we kind of what happened was so I was living with another person, and then I wanted to get my own house when I was gonna give birth so then we moved into a different place just to rental um, and I was initially just living there with one other co-parent and then another one joined us and then another one joined us and then it was kind of like that we were kind of overwhelming the house and so then when my daughter was two um, well when my daughter was one another really close my close friend partner now 
Kim, who I live with, um, she got pregnant as well. And she was actually my inspiration around, or, you know, I think it's really important for people to see having, see people having kids in a way that looks different. You need that example, yeah. right? And I remember sitting out to dinner, dinner with her, like sex worker mama, we're out having drinks somewhere and she's got these two little kids running around in this restaurant or whatever and they come up and they're like, mama, 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 And she's just like, and then she continues her conversation with me and then she says, okay, I'm ready to give you all my attention now. And I was like, that's the way, like, I want my own life. I don't want to just be a parent, right? Um, yeah. I am doing all of this, doing all of this life and I'm not going to stop doing any of these things, but I still, but I want to have a kid. So anyway, so it was really beautiful to see that example. So then when I got pregnant um, and she had lived in a women's collective, raising her kids there, not really a co-parenting thing, but just still living in community the way that I have always done. So can you make a distinction for me on on what that means to actually be a co-parent as opposed to being in community and in like a community with other parents who have I, I guess their own biological children or whoever they're mainly caretaking for? Yeah, I think that why well, I would define it as um, horizontalizing the plane of parenting. Okay. So it becomes, there's not a hierarchy of decision-making, right? Like uh, I, and, and there is a little bit still, like when the girls were little, um, you know, Kim and I never like joined our bank accounts, for instance. So Got it. Mm -hmm. we would still kind of like split what we, we needed to pay for with them. But there's a lot of flex in that too. Like we, we also pay for them both all kinds of different ways. But, um, you know, in terms of like her biological daughter's dental bill, she pays that and I pay mine and um I see. we might sometimes share those expenses if we need to but that's it's kind of a clear and easy way and that doesn't have to be true for everybody you know we do share a lot of finances in a lot of other ways so we collectively share all of the expenses of the house and community um there's six of us living here now um and I would say that you know in terms of parenting it's making a decision that we are parenting these kids as siblings right and we are we have the same rules. We don't actually have any rules. We don't believe in rules, but we have the same sort of expectations and boundaries for everybody in the house. Like we agree on kind of a parenting strategy and my decision doesn't carry more weight than yours in terms of how the children are raised, right? So you give Got up it. your own private stake in the kind of you know parenting style and you broaden that to include everybody including the people who do not have a biological child who are a co-parent. Got it. So it's really giving up the rights to your sort of private parenting. And in terms of the communication needed to make something like this work, was that like trial and error or did that feel like it came, you know, because this sort of, uh, sorry, this is a two-part question, but coming from a very conservative background that seems like a much more traditional approach to parenting to to family like a family nuclear unit or nuclear excuse me um yeah what were there sh like how did the how did this work for you was this like an effortful thing or did it um yeah I guess I just want it because it sounds fascinating and it feels pretty foreign and exciting to me and I'm curious like in my brain I'm like well how would I even begin <laughs> I don't know yeah yeah I mean I think a lot of it is building 
community and family, like chosen family, kids are not, right? And um, yeah. when you have that kind of chosen family experience, then you understand. I think I think that queer folks and sex workers, like we do that a lot because a lot of us have been rejected by our blood families or sure. don't feel safe with them or at least maybe are fine, but we don't really connect with them. You know, like I'm not going to live with my mom, you know, sure. love her to death. But um, so... I think there's that piece of like really believing in family as something that's far beyond blood. And then the other piece, um, while I did grow up in a traditional two-parent household where, where my parents were married, I'm multiracial and biracial and uh, my dad is Vietnamese. And um, Vietnamese culture is much different in that multi-generational families very much very often live together, right? So grandparents, kids, kids, spouses, kids, kids, like you have multi-generations in one home all the time. It's very, very, very common. So there's way less of this Western idea of separation. Got it. Um, and so I think that is not foreign to me at all in the sense that like living in community in Vietnamese families means living with family, but living in family can also mean community. And we have a really broad kind of definition of family, right? Where you're like, okay, technically this person is like my second cousin once removed, but everybody's just your cousin. Everybody's just sure. your aunt. Everybody's, you know, so yeah. you may not even know, at least I don't always know exactly how I'm related to somebody, but I'm like your family, you know, we also have a huge yeah. family. So <laughs> it makes, sure. it makes it harder to keep track, but yeah. Um, yeah. So I think that that also kind of primed the pump for, believing in and then that that kind of resource sharing and that kind of space sharing always made sense to me got it and then this kind of came about organically so i first lived in this one house and we kind of outgrew the house and we realized we all wanted to live together and then kim had had a baby and she was kind of going back and forth to california where her baby daddy was um so then i found this great big house downtown tucson with like six bedrooms and so then we were all able to move into this and just have a big punk house and that was an interesting one because it was kind of like um, everybody who kind of signed on to to be part of my family, my crew, you know, moving in. Um, and we all, I'd say, parented very well together, but we didn't all always live well together, right? We were close, mm. close friends, but, um, you know, it was kind of a different styles, right? And so as yeah. the kids got older, so we moved into that house when my daughter was two and we lived there for like three years, three and a half years. And then um, at the time, my partner was in LA. So I was going back and forth to LA all the time. And I kind of okay. like, you know, I didn't feel like I could take her away. This is the other thing of being like, I'm not a single parent exactly. Like I don't get to just totally autonomously be like, well, my partner's in LA. I'm just going to pull up my roots and go because totally. you've committed to me raising this kid. And so I've committed to not taking this kid away from you. Um so I was going back and forth and I was trying to figure out like, okay, is there a way where I move to LA and we still, you know, she still spends time here with the co-parents or like, you know, cause I could see my career being really well supported by being in LA as an artist. Sure. Um, and I, I was kind of really, yeah, um, very in love and very like interested in being back in the city. So sure. yeah, I was kind of doing that. And then I was for a while living between LA, Tucson, and Chicago. So I was every month traveling. I had homes in all three places and it was oh, wow. really intense. Yeah. Um, Cause I was working in Chicago, working in LA, a partner in LA, you know, working, living in Tucson. Um, 
So that's kind of how I sustained it for a while. And then basically that big punk house was a beautiful experiment and we all kind of then outgrew that. And we're like, okay, we kind of need our own spaces now. So then I moved to LA for a while and oh. um, more like full-time just for like a summer basically. Um, and then my other two co-parents moved into two houses that were actually like five blocks apart from each other. Okay. <laughs> and um, and then I wasn't sure I was going to come back. I'd put my stuff in storage in Tucson. I was like trying out LA. Then my partner and I just I just realized at a certain point that LA was not where I wanted to put my kid mm. in school. LA was not where I wanted to be like primarily home-based. Um, yeah. And also just because my partner and I were like, we still needed to work things out. So when that was happening, I like looked on the map or looked in the on Craigslist or something or, oh, no, no, actually the owner, I'd done an art show in this building. So she had sent a message out saying that this unit was available. Mm. And I looked at the map and it was exactly equidistant between my two other co-parents' homes. And I was like, oh my God, that's magic. That's perfect. <laughs> wow. And so, yeah, so I called and I was like, hey, I'm really interested in that space. And somebody else had snapped it up and I was like, no, because I just knew, yeah. I knew I was like, this is the right space. And then I was like, well, please let me know if anything falls through. And then I guess like a month later or something like that, she messaged and said, you know, um, the people, the organization that was going to take the space, their grant fell through. So it's open again. And I was like, hold it, hold the space. I want the space. <laughs> <laughs> and I, yeah, I basically rented it sight unseen. I actually had been in here, but I didn't totally remember it. And um, it is a big open warehouse loft with no walls here. I'll show you a little bit. Oh, wow. So this is how it looks. Oh, wow. So there's our giant Christmas tree. <laughs> and then Beautiful. there's my daughter's room right over there. She's waving at you. Oh, um, hi. But so as you can see, we don't have any walls. And um, I was like, uh, I was like talking to Kim or something. And I was like, hey, um, what do you think about this? I think it's super right. I don't even know. I haven't seen it. We're both out of town. We haven't been back in Tucson. She's in California. Yeah. I'm in some Chicago, something like that. And I was just like, I think, let's just do it. We'll make it work. It's going to be fine. And, um, <laughs> yeah. And so, yeah, so we moved in here and I was like, they were teenagers and I wasn't really sure how we were going to make it work without bedrooms or whatever, but I just had faith that it was going to be fine. And, um, and it was, and I always say it's kind of like a grand social experiment in the myth of privacy, you know, like, wow, that is, that's so neat. And then, so just in terms of like the conversations that you have with the kids and how you're raising them, you know, and, and as sex workers and activists and people who are so involved in the community, like what, how, and this might be a very broad question that we can kind of hone in on, but like, what is the conversation around sex and sex work and, and community and like, because I feel like it's so different than anything I grew up with and what a beautiful I imagine openness. And so I'm I'm curious, like, what is that dialogue? What is, are there boundaries in terms of like what the kids know or don't know, or I don't know what they interact with? Um, yeah, I mean, my policy is basically if you ever ask a question, I'm gonna answer it honestly, right? So um, in an age appropriate way. Uh, mm. So we've always been open with them that we're sex workers. They've known the term sex workers since they have known any other words. Um, what that appeared to be to them changed over, you know, time, what they think of 
that as a little kid where you're like, you know, I go on dates and I make money and I give massages and I do this and how I explained to them when they were like, you know, they would see a BDSM toy and they'd be like, what's that, right? Um, how I explained that to them when they were five versus 12 were different, right? Sure. Mm, but um, yeah, it's been very organic the way that those questions have come around and yeah, and super open and, you know, when they're little, they're they they don't care that much about what you do. <laughs> they're sure. not like mama's, <laughs> mama's job is. Um, and their friends don't care either. Then as they get older, you know, then you have to have a conversation of like, hey, this is what I do. It's not legal. I consider my job civil disobedience. Um, but uh, you know, and and we we love our careers, so we're also not. We have no shame around it. Right. Um, which I think is a different dynamic than. Uh, you know, a lot, so many sex workers are not out sure. to their families or to their kids or to anybody. Right. So. Sure. Yeah. That's amazing. And then um, I, I, I just want to touch on this last piece. This has all been so awesome and thank you for sharing. I feel really inspired and um, yeah, it's just really cool hearing, hearing your journey and all the amazing stuff that you've done. Um, this justice movement.org is um I don't know if it's it's one of the like largest manifestations of your activism and the way that you're you're able to um, spread this message into communities, into businesses, into individuals. And so um, I'd love to just talk about that piece for a second because it it feels like it's it's this big thing that I'm hoping to participate in in 2021 that Jill has also talked so much about. And I know so many people who've taken your last um, course. And so I'd love to just touch on that and and the work that you've been doing in terms of that organization. Yeah, thanks. Um, it yeah. It, so I've been doing, I came up in the Unitarian Universalist Church and did a lot of grassroots organizing training, facilitation training, anti-racism training, what, you know, what we now call diversity, equity, and inclusion training um, through various different training bodies. And so I've been, I've been facilitating anti-racism, anti-oppression trainings for 20 plus years as well, about as long as I've been doing sex work. <laughs> um, yeah. And so that has looked different and, you know, I've kind of been an independent trainer, but I've done everything from sort of like leadership institutes to, to whatever, but focusing a lot on sex worker organizations, um, uh, NGOs, nonprofits, community organizations, trying to like, you know, boards, boards of nonprofits and stuff. And so I have thought about organizing it more, like making it a little bit more formal for a long time. And then I've been involved in the fitness and yoga and acrobatic world for over a decade. And when I was doing all of my early teacher trainings in that world as a student, learning to teach, I was really seeing the need for this work. And so I was, I was trying to convince the teacher trainings that like, you know, anytime you train teachers, like this needs to be yeah. a part of it, right? That it, it absolutely has to, we cannot create a more inclusive and just world if the teachers are always looking the same, using the same problematic language, et cetera. So um, yeah. I started offering these trainings within teacher trainings that I was facilitating and um, oh. with one of my, the, the organizations, Acro Yoga Montreal that I trained under. Um, and then my colleague, Dania, uh, also studied diversity, has a master's in diversity studies from South Africa. And so oh. she and I met through the acrobatic world and the fitness world. And so we were both kind of doing these social justice oriented things. And so that became a natural collaboration. So we started this company a couple years ago within the idea that we would focus mostly on the movement and fitness world. Um, mm. But then because it's such a 
it's such a broad thing. You know, we're, we're very specific, like in that we have specific knowledge of what movement spaces may need. But um, yeah, so she and I met through the fitness world and decided to start this company. And it was kind of like slow going, right? Because it's hard. Often people are really resistant, right? People don't see it as a priority. Who you don't see it as a priority unless you see it as a priority. And you need to like have that moment of shift to be like, oh, this matters a lot. Um, yeah. I can't just teach acrobatics. I can't just teach dance. I can't just, you know, mm-hmm. work in the tech world, whatever it is. And so, yeah. So then I think, you know, prior to this summer, getting people to include this work in festivals and teacher trainings is like pulling teeth, right? You're like, please, will you include this thing? You really need to. And then they'll be like, okay, what can you do in an hour? What can you do in half an hour? Actually, everything else ran late. So now you only have 10 minutes. And, you know, it's just, it's very frustrating. And then in the wake of the George Floyd killing, I think people started to really, you know, especially organizations were like, oh, we actually can't be silent about this anymore. Like, now is the time. We need to know what to say and we're scared. So then we started getting pulled in as consultants a bunch more and um, had an opportunity to really develop our online content since we were grounded. And I think everybody's familiarity with Zoom now has made it so great because people the pandemic has made us able to offer things that people understand better. They're like, oh, I understand mm-hmm. how to do an online class. And so um, yeah. So in some ways it's been a real blessing in this space and time to, to really build this business. And, um, and yeah, it's become much more than just for fitness communities because everybody needs this. So we're kind yes. of, yeah, we, the work we do is a lot of the work that I was trained up originally to do I feel like was built on trying to get that emotional aha moment where people of privilege suddenly saw how bad things really were in the world. And they got punched in the mm-hmm. gut with this like horrible feeling of shame and guilt, like, oh my God, racism is real. How did I not know this? Like, you know, these kinds of things. Um, but often at the expense of the most marginalized folks in the room, right? And so mm-hmm. I have worked really hard over the last couple of decades to develop teaching styles and facilitation styles that maybe doesn't deliver you quite that punch in the gut the same way. Hopefully it does, but um, yeah. in a way that doesn't exploit the people in the room. And so the work that I do now is really intimate and personal. And a lot of it is about learning, unpacking yourself and learning about yourself in in community with other people doing the same work and sharing those sort of tender moments of truth where we we like open and shift and learn how to step into a brave space, how to step into a confident space, to be ready to like have the emotional grounding to have hard conversations with the people around us who are saying problematic things or doing problematic things. Um, And so, yeah, really trying to like handhold and usher people into a space where they're ready to um, do the work. Amazing. Um, Well, I'm hoping that I can take your uh, new workshop that's starting in February uh, for the month. But how can people find you uh, individually and through this justicemovement.org? How can they contact you if they want more information or just want to check out how freaking cool you are Um, online? Totally. I I am all over the internet, so I'm pretty easy to find. Um, Natalie Brewster Wynn is my name on everything. 
all the social medias. Um, you can find me on Facebook, on Insta, on Twitter. I'm not super active on Twitter, but um, you, I have my website is nataliebrewsterwin.com. Uh, justicemovement.org is my training and consulting company. Love to see you there. You can reach out on any of the platforms. My email is around. Um, yeah, and for the acrobatic stuff, I work with flightschoolacrobatics.com and I work with Cirque Roots uh, Studio here in town and reach out to me amazing um and we'll put all of that in the in the show notes as well but um this has been absolutely wonderful i'm so grateful for you taking this much time and for sharing so much i've i i've learned a lot and i just thoroughly enjoyed it so thank you yeah absolutely it's been really wonderful to talk to you i feel like we ranged all over a whole number of different topics we did we just yeah, we it's just gonna, gamut. gonna come together perfectly <laughs> Yeah, it's amazing. <laughs> awesome. Well, I super hope that, yeah, I hope you can join us in February. It'd be great to have you. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Um, that was amazing. I'm super grateful for Natalie coming on the podcast. Uh, she is a connection through my cousin, which is really cool, who's also been on the podcast. But um, yeah, thank you for taking so much time. Please look up Justice Movement. I am really excited to do their program that's starting, um, their anti-racism program starting in February on Wednesdays. It's very reasonable. There's a sliding scale, uh, and I think everybody could use could use the the um the education man <laughs> yeah. you know yeah you know i want to you know it's not justice movement but i want to give a little uh i think a little uh nugget of joy perhaps is that my uh my mom and some of her like older southern white women friends are in like a diversity uh and inclusion book club that like right oh. now they're going through like white supremacy and what that what does that mean and all this type of stuff and it's like you know if you know if they can go through it and they're like you know 60s to 70s it's like yeah well, that's good i'm glad that's a good step forward and we should all be more conscientious of it and yeah. you know check out justice movement if you're interested in learning more about it yeah um yeah uh, that's amazing well thank you for sharing yeah. i think that that we need more of that yeah i mean it's honestly like in In some ways i'm kentucky (laughs) yeah honestly some days i'm surprised because it's like i hear it in the other room and they're like talking through these really tough difficult topics and i'm like it's a tough world right now like you know as of like to to voluntarily choose and you've lived your whole life without considering this stuff like to now want to change that's awesome yeah oh god that's what we need oh my god that's inspiring and awesome (laughs) i sidetracked this but nevertheless no that's amazing i think that's so amazing and i uh i think justice movement is an amazing resource if you're also looking to do that work and be guided by people who have um you know training in this and a background and um are just wonderful humans that you can support as well um yeah, so please follow us on social media at Finding My Yum Podcast on both Instagram and Facebook. We are now on YouTube. We are on YouTube. If you want to email us, you can do that at findingmyyum at gmail.com. Uh, make sure to rate, review, and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts and share with a friend who you think uh, would really benefit from listening to an episode like this. There was a lot of really interesting information in it. Uh, so that means there's a lot of nuggets you can share with friends. And who doesn't want to um, have a reason to get really deep and uh, thoughtful with a friend right now? <laughs> and maybe, maybe this is how you can start, you know, the conversation around creating your own, own co-parenting uh, group. Ooh, 
Ooh, yeah, I like just that. I like slide that. it in with a little podcast intro, and then like, by the way, I don't know what you're thinking about, but like, you know, something to think about. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it definitely is like a mind expansion, right? Of yeah. like, how do we, you know, break down these terms and think about like, what do they really mean to us, and yeah. how how can we fulfill them in the best way that makes our heart full? Um, yes. Well, we love you. Thank you for being here with us. We are so excited to keep sharing really exciting content. We've got so much coming up. I can't wait to share. So stay yummy and stay tuned next week. Woohoo!